This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. So before we start the show, I want to share some exciting news with you. I'm coming back to New York City for a live show on Thursday, April 11th. Now, if you haven't been to a live taping of How I Built This, they are super fun, super energetic, and it's a chance to meet other listeners to the podcast. I'll be talking with John Foley, the founder and CEO of Peloton. The show is supported by American Express, and you can get your tickets at nprpresents.org. And I hope to see you there. I met a lot of shady people who wanted to manage me. I didn't feel like I was a priority. It was a bunch of guys who knew everything and were telling me, you gotta have a girl record, you gotta have a hard record, you gotta have a record for the club, you got this, you got that, and they're like telling me what to do. And I sat down with a young man who had just as much experience as I did and was prepared to risk everything to attain his dream. And he needed me, needed me as much as I needed him. And I was like, yeah, let's like, YOLO, like, let's do it, man. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. Guy Raz, and on the show today, how a broke rapper and an aspiring music manager with no experience teamed up to top the Billboard charts and build a multi-million dollar business. So about two years ago, if you turned on a pop music station, you could not get away from this song. I've been on a low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. I don't want to be alive. Now, if you don't know this track, it's worth listening to. The title of the song is 1-800-273-8255. This also happens to be the phone number for the American National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. This song blew up on the Billboard charts. It was nominated for a Grammy, and it actually turned Logic, the rapper behind the track, into a superstar. This song, as you can imagine, is about pain, about the pain of loneliness and depression, two subjects that aren't always front and center in the world of hip-hop. And the thing about this song is, when Logic performs it live, people in the audience break down and cry. So many people connect with it in a deep and personal way, almost like he's rapping about their exact experiences. But Logic, who was actually born Sir Robert Bryson Hall II, was writing something that authentically describes his own experience about growing up around violence and addiction without a stable home life and sometimes without anywhere to live. And the chances that he'd one day be performing in front of tens of thousands of people was so totally remote. But what Logic could do was write music and rap And for the most part, that's what he was doing 10 years ago in and around the D.C. metro area. At around the same time, Chris Zeru was a college student struggling to find work in the music industry. In fact, he couldn't even get an internship at any of the big record labels when he first came across Logic. But we'll get there, because the story of how Logic built the brand Logic is as much about his talent as a musician as it is about Chris Zeru's talent 
as a marketer. And today's episode is about what happens when two totally different people with totally different skill sets happen to meet. And just a note, you'll hear from Chris Saru a little bit later. First to Logic, who, as I mentioned, was born Sir Robert Bryson Hall II. My dad likes to tell me now that we have a better relationship, that he's the one who named me that, but I know it was my mom because she's like of English descent if you go far back enough, and she's an eccentric woman, and she decided to name me, you know, Sir first, and my <laughs> father's name is Robert Bryson Hall, and so she named me Sir Robert Bryson Hall II, wherein technically, because she added the Sir, I'm actually the first, which is really funny, <laughs> and whenever I have a boy, I'll name him the third, but he'll be the second. So um, tell me about your parents, and I guess you were the only child of their marriage or their time together. Were they married? Yep. Um, they were never married. I was born out of wedlock. Um, my mom, like the nitty-gritty of it is she's just a, a deep, 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 deep down good woman who, you know, at a young age was uh, molested. She'd been raped growing up. She got into all kind of drugs, running around with drug dealers, and my father was uh, never really in the picture because he was addicted to crack cocaine. Um, so when you were little, it was just, it was, y- you never knew your dad. You just knew your mom. Yeah, well, I knew my dad, you know, but I, I knew him as a drug addict, which is messed up, you know. Um, but he, yeah, it was like he'd go away for a few years and then he'd come back and he'd leave and then he'd come back. And But they were never together. That's mm-hmm. the one thing is like they... It's really weird. I've seen my mom go back to a lot of men. She never went back to him. I never had that moment or that time of where I felt like family. So your your mom and dad basically um, they had a brief relationship. You were you're the product of that relationship. Your dad is African American. Your mom is Caucasian. She's white. Yeah. Um, and tell me about like where you grew up. Did you did you grow up in a in a house or an apartment? Uh, yeah, we grew up in Section Eight housing. So food stamps, welfare. Had a few hundred dollars a month from the government to live off. It was my you and your spent, mom? Yeah, just me and my mom. She spent a lot of that in different times on, you know, alcohol and cigarettes. And I, I you know, remember times where we'd have three and a half dollars that could have bought us some rice and some uh, some powdered eggs. And, you know, she'd buy a pack of cigarettes. And I grew up with her saying the craziest things. Like, I would, I was just a kid, you know? I was a hyper kid. And then if I pissed her off, she'd say things like, you deserve to feel pain. Or she'd call me a or any of these crazy things because of the systemic racism that was deep down inside her, which is insane. But mind you, it's like she was troubled. So I've, I feel bad for her. It's not like I'm like, oh, my mom, screw her, terrible woman. It's just like, was she a good mom? No. Was she a human being who had a terrible past and took that out on me and her other kids? Yes. And that's the reason she's not in my life. It's just that simple. So you grew up with your mom um, mainly, and you would see your dad from time to time. And was he... Would he sort of go in and out of of bad spells, or was he constantly, you know, using drugs? Yeah, he was he was pretty much constantly using drugs. Um, you know, a lot of my childhood was in AA meetings, like you know, I, you know, um, just kind of reciting the prayer at the end of it and listening to all these people talk about all the things they go through, which is so hard and it's so difficult. And seeing people, um, you know, just kind of using again and then getting clean and this and that and my dad was like that one of my earliest childhood memories I was about five and my dad I don't know why I was with him but my I was with him for I think the weekend and my dad took me to southeast DC 
and left me in a car, back of a car for five hours while him and some woman I didn't know uh, went to go smoke crack uh, in this in this house, which was insane. It's crazy. How how did you avoid like getting into drugs and and alcohol? It just really, really, really scared me. You know, I ran around. I've done a lot of stuff. I've shot guns. I've robbed people. I've ran from the police. I've done a bunch of stupid things because I was around other stupid people because I felt that they were my family. You know, it's why a lot of young men and women join actual, like, real gangs. It's because they have nothing at home and here's a family who will protect them. And it's kind of sick and twisted because it's like, okay, we're going to hurt other people, but these people won't hurt me. So we'll hurt others together. And then at least that way I'm safe. Hmm. But there was that voice deep down that was like, yo, like this isn't right. And for me, when I got into music for real, and I was 18 and I was like, I'm not going to let anything hold this back. My father is an incredible musician, singer, percussionist, playing go-go in Chocolate City, DC. I mean, amazing. And I saw what cocaine did to him. Hmm. And and I was like, I can't let this happen to me. So that's why I steered clear from it. Hmm. So so sticking with music for for a second, being exposed to it, um, I guess as a teenager, you you started to meet some people who who kind of took an interest in you musically. Who who were they? Well, kind of even when it comes to music, I had a friend named Josh, mm-hmm. and uh, he was who would eventually go on to be my my godmother's son, and uh, her name was Mary Jo, and I love her, and she's the sweetest woman in the world, and he kind of saw that I had a niche for. Raps. I just freestyled, you know, on the block with all all my friends and had fun. And so he he was a person that was there, and a gentleman named Solomon Taylor, who was my mentor. Who's Solomon? So Solomon was this guy that I met uh, when I was volunteering at RFL, which is the Rockville Football League, uh, just to get extra credit to be able to pass eighth grade. So I was 13. He was 19 at the time. And he's a hustler. Uh, so basically, you have the, all these football. I would set up the football fields, and you'd have, like, peewee and... You know, these kids in middle school and stuff playing football. And what he would do is he would show up and how he built this whole kind of business is he would film the kids games and then duplicate the tapes, create highlights and then sell those to the parents, Hmm. which was really amazing. And then so we became friends and then I eventually kind of worked for him at his booth and he paid me nothing. And it taught me a lot about a lot in the winter and the freezing cold and the snow standing at a booth outside. And this dude was there for me. He, 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 He introduced me to, you know, so many incredible MCs. He, he, he brought me these old things called uh, How to Be an MC CDs, which is basically like a bunch of instrumentals, famous instrumentals of the 2000s. And he'd be like, rap on these. And I would literally rap on every single song. And if he, he gives me 10 CDs, there's like 80 beats. I rapped on those and he was cool and he was great. He was a, he was a good dude. I read that. I read that when the movie Kill Bill came out, um, oh, yeah. you got you got the soundtrack to that to that film which was um which was produced and, and composed uh by 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 Riza um yeah. from Wu-Tang Clan and that was like a huge like turning point for you you heard this and you were like what is this yeah um man that movie like just something about it there's probably also the fact that my mom was like you can't watch this it's too bloody and then, you know <laughs> your parents say don't do something and then you want to go do it <laughs> When I heard that soundtrack, I was like, who the hell is the RZA? <laughs> you know? And, like, uh, this was, like, back in the time, like, where it was, like, uh, pop, lock, and drop it, and do that, laugh it, tap it. It was, like, the, like, the whole South, like, fun turn-up music, yeah. but I, I wanted something a little deeper. Now, 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 now
I'd listen to AT, AT Aliens and, you know, uh, so Outkast, UGK, like hearing those stories. So after being introduced to the Riz, I found Wu-Tang Clan. And obviously we've all heard of Wu-Tang Clan. Sure. But I'm, you know, I'm a 14-year-old kid. Like, I don't really know. This, I'm learning. And, and then I listen to Wu-Tang, and I'm listening to the Wu-Tang album, and then I discover Raekwon's Only Built for Cuban Links, and then I discover Nas, and then I discover the beef between Nas and Jay-Z, like, truly. If it wasn't for Kill Bill, if it wasn't for The Risen, if it wasn't for Tarantino, dude, like, we wouldn't even be talking right now. So when when you were, like, already a teenager, were you just, like, would you just rap with friends, like, just mess around and, and just, like, you know, throw out rhymes or just try to imitate your favorite artists or, or did that come later? Yeah, no, 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 that was, yeah, for sure. Like we would always do freestyles, but I took it seriously when I was 15 and, and, and I was introduced to how to record myself through, you know, a BS microphone into a computer. Like I took it seriously and I learned to emulate all my favorites. How, how does Pac rap like this? How does Jay do this? How does Kanye do that? I want to rap over this boom bap 90s beat, this run DMC beat. Okay, now I want to rap over super mainstream hit song. I want to sing like Drake. I want to do this like that. I, want to, I wanted to do it all. So take me back to, to 2007. You're 17. You yeah. leave home. You, you, you stop living with your mom and you're working jobs, but you're also making music. But how are you actually making music? Like, did you buy... A microphone and like did you have a computer and like what were, how are you actually doing that i um i was on a yahoo messaging chat about music and hip-hop and some some person introduced me to a program for recording a lot of people use it in radio called adobe audition sure uh and i was like what the hell is that i don't know what that is and this is back in the day where like this small file took probably about nine hours the person actually was sat with me for nine hours on my computer so they were somewhere else they could have been alaska i don't remember and they transferred the file onto my computer it was an illegal download a hundred percent everything was yeah right, right. <laughs> yeah and so i learned kind of how to use that and by the time i was 18 years old and living with mary joe and had two jobs uh, solomon had provided me with a, a a pc very strong pc at the time and a million torrented albums i mean from jay-z to r kelly i was rapping on brian mcknight beats like i did, it was whatever it didn't matter what it was you uh, would just take you just take like beats and like samples from other records and then just like mess around and rap over those yeah and i would just like loop them i would like right. loop the end of the beat and i had the beat and i did that with a 80 dollars microphone in a jerry-rigged closet with a pillows around it and and just would just go i would just go and go and go and i would just it's and the crazy thing is i have every song i've ever created wow but you thought you were going to i mean you were like working jiffy lube or whatever job you could get but like you really thought i am gonna make a career out of being a performer like this is what i'm gonna do like you really thought that that moment came two years later I was 20 years old, and it's before I put out my first mixtape ever called Young, Broken, Infamous to the public on the hosting site datpiff.com. But you would just put you just put your mixtape out there of your own music, and anybody could put, put their music on the site? 
Uh, yeah. Anybody could put their music on this site. I think you had to pay like 50 bucks or something to upload it. But that was the time. That was the moment. Step to the mic and now I got you. Call me Young Sinatra. The flow is prominent. Hella dominant. On time on it when I'm rhyming it. Said the label's itching to sign with it. There's actually a song on there called Young Sinatra, which then inspired the series. So then my following mixtape was Young Sinatra. Then Young Sinatra, one, two, three, four. So that's when I said, I was working at a supermarket. I quit. And I was like... This is it. This is everything. I'm just going to do it. Now is the time. I'm young. It's okay to fail now. It's okay to fall down because I don't want to look back in my 50s like with regret. Can you imagine being, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old filled with regret? There was that voice in my head like, nah, man, you can do this. And that's when I went to go live with with Lenny in his basement in uh, College Park. So you were living in a basement with a friend in College Park around 2010, 2009, 2010. I'm trying to understand. I mean, you decide I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a go at this. Like you're putting out mixtapes, and I guess you're performing locally. You're like going to yeah, open definitely. mic stuff. But you yeah. had no money. You were still I'm assuming you were still pretty broke. Oh, you don't understand. I was so broke that I would steal quarters from Lenny's little like collection that he had, so I could go buy food. And he actually like screamed at me and was like, "Just ask, man. Like it's all good. Like you just got you know all you gotta do is ask." And I didn't have a job. I was supposed to get a job. It was unspoken and. And I kind of just sat down with him and was like, can you just give me a year? Like, can you just give me one? I know this is insane, but it seems like every week something new is and exciting is happening. And now is the moment. Like, could you just give me just one year? And uh, this was 2011. So I was 20. I was just turned 21. And and mm-hmm. he, and yeah, he gave for a year. I did everything I could. And you just put out music on the Internet. You weren't selling it at that point. Um, yeah, no, it was all free. All right, we're going to come back to Logic in just a couple minutes because while at this point in his life he was crashing in his friend's basement, his future manager, Chris Zeru, is going to college in New York. At this point, they do not know each other. In fact, a career in music isn't even on Chris's radar because at that point in his life, he was laser-focused on soccer. I thought I, I was going to be a professional athlete. I, I played soccer very competitively growing up all the way through high school and, and got an opportunity to play Division One, which which I wow. thought was the first step to, you know, completing that goal, right? Where and, were you uh, playing, by the way? What what college? I, I My freshman year, I played for Canisius College in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought that was the best opportunity for me at the time. They're a very competitive team. Soon after that, I think after my sophomore year, and I had transferred in between then uh, to play at a different school, I realized that I, I just, you know, I wasn't good enough. I was, I was very good, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to play at the higher level. So I'm trying to, trying to figure out how you, like, made a transition into music. I mean, did you, did you just think, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do sports. I'm going to get into the music business. Yeah, um, I was, I was 20 or 19, probably at the time when I started trying to figure it out. I knew when I stopped playing, I wanted to do something I loved and was passionate about. I think that's all I knew. So I, I kind of asked myself, you know, what else do I love as much as that sport? And the only thing that I could answer with was music. So I said, okay, that, that's what I'm going to do. I didn't know where I'd start. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any relationships. So I would literally go to 
Barnes and Noble and, and kind of read books on, on the music business and, and try and figure it out. And I, and I chose management because I thought it would be the least barrier to entry. And I was like, okay, if I find talent and start working with them, that would be my way into the business. But you didn't think like, let me go like see if I can get a job working for like one of these big record labels or management companies and kind of get experience. Like that wasn't where what you thought you should do at first? I tried. Um, oh. I, I definitely tried that route. I, I started with internships. I, I didn't graduate college yet, so I didn't really apply for jobs, but... At almost every major record label, I applied for internships, and you know I kept getting turned down one after the other. I actually got one interview that they actually had me come in for an interview, and I thought it went great. And ultimately, mm. they you know they said you know sorry this this isn't going to work. And I just remember I emailed the woman and I asked. I actually still have the email. I asked why um, isn't isn't this going to work, and and she told me I didn't have enough experience. Which I just thought was really funny because I was going oh, for an internship, yeah, right. And and the funny part about it, and the reason why I said, you know, I, I have the email. I actually printed it out recently, and I'm getting it framed for the office. It was Def Jam, which is ultimately where where <laughs> Logic's Logic signed to, probably right. a, a year, a little bit over a year after that. So, all right. So you're living on Long Island with your parents and getting all these rejections for internships. So so what? Like you decide, maybe I'll just do this on my own without an internship? Like, maybe I'll just figure this out? Yeah, and, and to be honest, I didn't have another choice. Huh. Um, I didn't, I couldn't get an internship. I didn't have any relationships or, you know, friends or family that worked in the business that could give me an opportunity. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a choice. That was, that was the only path that I had. So what did you, des- did you decide to, like, start a business or did you just first decide, let me kind of scour the internet and see if I can find someone? Yeah, I think that, that starting a business came a little bit later. I was just mm-hmm. like, you know what? Let me let me find some talent. Let me let me reach out to them and and just kind of start a dialogue and try to build a relationship with some of them and you know convince them to to let me manage them. How did you come across Logic stuff? Yeah, it was it was it was it was kind of by by chance. It was you know I use the word serendipity. I I was managing an artist, a rapper at a Philly at the time. And this was 2011. So it was very early days of, of Twitter, you know, and I probably at the time followed 25, 30 people. And I was sitting in front of my computer and his DJ, the, the rapper's DJ that I managed from Philly, tweeted out a, a YouTube link, right? There was no description. There was no um, anything else in, in the tweet. It was just the link. And I, and I clicked it. It was a acapella video of Logic rapping uh, at the University of Maryland campus and it was super it was super low budget and poorly done Um, there was there was wind in the microphone he actually I think had the microphone like tucked in his hoodie Um, there was just something about it that that stood out to me and I thought it was really special and I kind of dug in a little deeper to try and find out who he was and 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 reached out to him what did you say like I'm Chris and I'm a, a A manager yeah I'm a manager you know can we can we jump on the phone do you have first of all I probably asked him if he had management because I didn't want to step on anybody's toes sure Um, you have to understand it's you know I'm a kid trying to get another kid to trust me with their career I had no no, yeah no no experience no resume Uh, I think I pointed to some of or one of the other artists I was working with at the time and said hey you know I'm working with this artist we had built this so far you know check it out and I'd, I'd love to to uh, to to be involved. 
All right, just time out for a sec, Chris. This is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, you were 20 years old, and you were emailing, like, different potential artists, including Logic at the time, who was, you know, not that well-known. And and you were saying, I'm a manager. What did you know? Like, what did that mean to you? Like, how would you even know what to do? Like, did were there books that said, hey, here's how to be a... a the manager of a recording artist like how did you know what to how to negotiate contracts and find venues and record music like how did you know how to do any of that i i didn't uh, to be honest um you know a lot of what i was doing was was learning as i went and i to looking back now i i'm i'm very grateful and glad that i did learn that way because i think that's the best way mm-hmm. to learn a lot of management and a lot of the music business is very difficult i don't think you can Learn it in a textbook. Yeah, and you call, and I should mention, you called your your company Visionary Music Group, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is a great name. It sounds, it makes it sound like a huge company, like you've got a big building in Hollywood. <laughs> Visionary Music Group. Yeah, it was. Uh, I remember I made, and at the time, having to come up with a company name, it was more just to kind of, you know, I formed an LLC when I started to make money because I had to be paid and. Um, I had a little, I remember a Microsoft Word document with some names and I ended up landing on on the word visionary. I thought it was at the time fitting. I think that's how Logic and I, you know, looked at ourselves. I think we were doing something very different um, that I thought and and we thought was, was visionary. All right, Chris, we've been leaving Logic and Lurch here because you are sitting right next to each other. Um, Logic, what do you what do you remember about Chris? Like you were, I guess, 21. Uh, this guy named Chris comes down to meet you. Uh, wh- what was your first impression of him? Actually, we met in New York City. Uh, it was my first time ever in New York, and it just kind of happened by chance that I was going to go there to shoot a music video. I wanted to do something that was different. And this was like and, a low budget, right? A video you were doing like, yeah. There's low budget, and then there's no budget. And that's what we had. Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, like, right. We had no, right. literally, you know, just a camera and, you know, point and shoot, as we call it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I go to New York, and Chris had, like, a friend who had a rooftop, and we're like, rooftop? You know, that's that's content right there. So we're like, yeah, let's get a rooftop on, in New York. And, and we go there, and the, the music video is called Mind of Logic, and it's, like, skeleton me rapping at, like, 120 pounds <laughs> a long time ago, just, like, winging it. Step into the mind of a young man, and if you don't, then I don't really give a damn. All I want to do is make you understand, but if you don't want to listen, I guess you ain't a part of the plan. After the shoot, he was like, hey, I want to buy you lunch. And I'm like, free food? You ain't going to say, say less. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> um, and so we're kind of near Times Square. I'm like, yeah, I've never been to Times Square before, man. Like, this is great. Let's go somewhere. And he's like, uh, uh, okay. And I'm like, yeah, there was like a Ruby Tuesday or something like that. And I'm like, let's go, man. I'm about to get a free chicken sandwich or something. And he's like, no, nah, you know, yeah, I mean, it's just tourist stuff. You, you, you want to go somewhere else? And like what I didn't realize is... You know, looking back, it's like I'm talking to a broke college student with maybe $150 in his account. Like, if that, like, it's got to last him the next six years of his life. And, yeah, I mean, we we talked, and he was like, I want to manage you. And he was honest with me. He was like, hey, look, like, I'm just getting into this, too. He's like, but I've made some connections. I know some people. And, and, you know, he had met some people at blogs, different blogs online and, and kind of music spaces where young people were excited. And word of mouth via the Internet was a big deal. And I was like... All right. Well, I was, I didn't want to sign anything. That was a big thing. I was like, I don't want to mm. sign anything. If we're going to do this, like, I don't want to sign anything. And he wasn't pushing to sign anything either. And that's a really 
amazing thing uh, because he he allowed he was like, yo, I'm going to walk the walk. Like, I'm going to show you that I'm going to do this. And that's what we did for about the first six months. And Just then we unsigned. You were like, OK, yeah. yeah, we can we can try this out, but I'm not committing to you. Yeah. And I remember we released the music video and like overnight it had 20,000 views. Now, you got to understand, mm-hmm. dude. 20,000 views in 2011. I, 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 yeah, I was going from 100 views and it was all people I knew <laughs> like to, to that to the point where I we actually sat Chris down, all of us, and kind of <laughs> it felt like an intervention. And I was like, yo, what's up, man? You paying for views or what? Because there's like back then where like people, it was a big deal because it's kind of like fake it till you make it. People would pay yeah. and, it'd be, and it would be fake. He's like, nah, bro. He's like, I could prove it to you. I could show you. And and man he, it was legit but even before you got to that point like i'm trying to i'm trying to figure out like you're like eating a ruby tuesday or whatever and chris is like hey give me you know give me give me a chance and you don't have anyone managing you at that point and i guess you're still not kind of an unknown artist but what made you think yeah i, I i'm gonna trust this guy with zero experience who's like my age like what because Obviously, we know how this story is going to end. But at that point in 2011, you did not. And yeah. neither of you knew how this is going to end. You both could have just like could have fizzled out. But what, what was it about him that you thought, yeah, I, I'm going to try this? I met a lot of shady people who wanted to manage me, you know, huh. older dudes who were once kind of in the industry, you know, different people who were musicians themselves or this or that. I didn't feel like I was a priority. It was a bunch of guys who knew everything and were telling me, you got to have a girl record. You got to have a hard record. You got to have a record for the club. You got this. You got that. And they're like telling me what to do. And I sat down with a young man who had just as much experience as I did. And I was looking in a mirror. I was looking at a green kid who had no idea what he was doing and was prepared to risk everything to attain his dream. And he needed me, needed me as much as I needed him. And I was like, yeah, let's like YOLO. Like, let's do it, <laughs> yeah. man. Like, yeah. And that that's what it was. So, Chris, at this point, and, and, I'm, and Logic and Chris, forgive me for kind of characterizing this way. But in a sense, like like Logic, you were you were the brand that the business was being built around you and your brand and your talent and you it's like you're the product that is you're putting out into the world but chris like when i do interviews with other entrepreneurs it's at this point when they go out to vcs and raise money to like get the product out into the world how are you funding this how are you how are you having logic record music and because i think at this time you were just releasing all of his music for free just just putting it out on the internet and letting anybody take it right yeah, and and what we were doing, like you said, we were building the brand. I viewed that putting out free music as as investing in the brand, right? As we were building an audience and a fan base that was becoming more and more invested. And and what that means is that they would later down the road, whenever we asked for it, spend the money. Meaning, oh, we're gonna put out our first you know project for sale or hey we're gonna put up a tour for the first time will you spend twelve dollars to come see me in san diego hey we're selling t-shirts for twenty dollars so i that's how i viewed it we were essentially monetizing free music Hmm. 
So, so how did you guys make a living? I mean, if, if, if in 20, 2011, 2012, you were putting out, and maybe even 2013, like you were just putting out free music, how are you, like, how are you guys paying your rent? How are you buying food? My, my parents were uh, very, very, very good about allowing me to, to live there. Again, I was still in school, um, yeah. so I didn't, have to, I didn't have to worry about that. Logic was still at Lenny's apartment, so, you know, we didn't have too many expenses at the time. And, and mind you, not to interrupt, but, like, I was in College Park sleeping on Lenny's couch. Yeah. And, you know, we were, we were still shopping ourselves. Like, we wanted a deal. That was, like, the goal. And, you know, there was even independent companies that put a contract for $1.5 million in our in hands. In front of you. Wow. In front of us. And Chris had it. And I remember he, he said something really corny. It was really funny. Like, <laughs> he was just excited. He was like, how much you think our brand that we're creating is worth? And I was like, I don't know. And he was like, well, somebody thinks it's worth $1.5 million. And mind <laughs> you, it's like, bro, like $1.5 million yeah. is a lot of money right now. Like, it's like, uh, let alone it's like some super broke young kids. Um, and so we turned it down. And long you story short, it down. We, yeah, we turned it down like it was nothing. Uh, Why? Because they wanted, I mean, first of all, we were getting screwed over on points, on royalties, on longevity. They also wanted us, they were going to take a lot of control. And we were like, no, we always have to be in control because we know what we want. I just want to kind of pause for a second, just ask you about music for a moment, because um, like, what what do you think it, it is and it was about your music that connected with people like it's rap it's hip-hop but generally like you know you're described as as having positive messages and and you know talking about things in an open way about your own emotions and about injustice and about anxiety and depression all these things um i mean do you think that's what was connecting with with people even from the beginning yeah i think i was the every man or every kid or every person or every whatever it was like people were watching me grow up like a child mm. star. You know what I mean? Like mm. they were, they listen to this and they hear me say, I can't wait to make it. I can't wait to have fans. I can't wait to be the man with the master plan. I can't wait. Like da da da. And they're like, me too. Like, I can't wait to graduate college. I can't wait to, <laughs> you know, raise my children. I can't wait to follow my dreams. I'm going to do that. And I'm like, follow your dreams. Like no matter what. And haters going to hate. Like till I overdose. I said it once, had to say a dose. I remember living at Mary Joe's. Now I'm living like pharaohs. I work like a slave, live like a king. Even today, like on, on a mainstream level, like all the, uh, so much of the things I talk about openly from anxiety, depression, uh, just all the, th like you said, injustice, the things going on one I'm scared to talk about or I was scared uh, at a point because I was scared that of how people would perceive me or this or that but two it's like now it's become a trend you know you've got yeah. you've got you've got rappers yeah. hardcore rappers and people talking about depression and mental health and I ain't the first one I think it's just time place uh, you know a bit of image just I'm, it was this nerdy young kid that other people felt they could relate to yeah so how soon after Chris you started working with Logic did you say all right let's we got to go on tour and and let and and did you go on tour? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how soon but it was it was an intuition thing, right? Because there was no 
there was no metrics at the time or data that we had that said, hey, you can sell out 30 shows across the country. It was something mm-hmm. that we both felt, hey, I think it, it feels right. And, and I think we could probably go go on a tour now. And how we did that, because that's an expensive thing, right? There's a lot of startup capital that you need to fund a tour. We ultimately signed a record deal to fund our tour because we needed the money. I think we could have waited longer if we had some money, but um, you know we didn't have an opportunity to, to, to wait. And it felt right. I mean... And just to clarify, this is 2012. The, the record deal you signed is with Def Jam? Yeah, this yeah. is 2012. Yeah, No ID comes to you, you know, legendary producer who's, you know, new executive at Def Jam. And Def Jam in general, like Def Jam Records, the most iconic hip-hop rap label, is willing to sign you, give you great money, give you creative control. It was kind of like, if there's a time, like, now's the time. And, yeah, but I'll tell you this, it was very difficult, you know, looking at a check and seeing, you know, lower six figures, very lower, just six figures uh, in an advance, which is still great. And then literally going, okay, well, you know, after X, Y, and Z takes their percentage, just on my team management and lawyer at that time, I have to put all of this into a tour. And and yeah. that was that was a hard thing, but it was, it just as a young man who's like, oh, wait, I just got this check and now I got to let it all go, but it was worth it. Right. This is your sweat equity in, in, in the brand, basically. Yeah. This is like, you had to kind of put all that, so you could have gone through that tour and been broke and, and we might not be talking today. Uh, I mean, that was a poss- That was a very real possibility. The odds were in that favor that it wasn't going to happen. When we come back in just a moment, Logic and Chris hit the road, but there will be speed bumps ahead with money and mental health all on the line. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair Chance Hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at checker.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio Tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, Copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's 2012. Logic and his manager, Chris Saru, have signed a record deal with Def Jam. But it's hardly glamorous. They still haven't cut an album, and the money they got from signing that deal, they had to put most of it towards their first tour. We toured the country in, in a minivan and a Nissan Altima, right? I, I rented from Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and I remember filling out the paperwork, and it specifically said that the cars, the vehicles could not leave New York State. And we were literally touring the country, and the way it was routed, we were going to California and back. So I was like, all right, they'll, you know, they'll never know we left. Um, and then I ended up getting, 
you know, a million and one tickets for, for going through tolls and all over the country. But um, no, it was not first class and, and five-star accommodations. We were lugging garbage bags and we were, you know, selling merch after shows. I'd run and sell merch after shows. Logic would come over to the merch booth and meet fans. And hmm. um, yeah, so it was, it was a, uh, it was like a mom and pop tour. And yeah. uh, we, we tried to figure it out. And I had my right hand man today, my, the COO of, of Visionary Music Group, Harrison Remler, um, at the time he was in school. He Harry. was, he was 18 years old. And wow. uh, this was your he, only employee at the time. At the time, he wasn't even employed. I think he was interning for me. And I said to him, I said, "Hey," because I realized very quickly that I couldn't be on the road full time and try and sustain and run the business. It was very difficult. I think I did the first two weeks of it, and I remember saying to him, "Hey, dude, you know, how do you, would you like to tour manage?" And he was sure and i threw him on the road <laughs> and um again we, didn't know what we were doing it was terrible we had no idea what we were doing i <laughs> i our, our accounting my accounting system was manila, manila envelopes so bef- <laughs> before tour i kind of wrote out every show so you had denver colorado and we'd settle the shows in cash um at the time that tour was actually a, a no guarantee tour so the, the the risk was massive. Tell him real very quick because it's something I want to say. Tell him about what happened with the money. Oh, <laughs> trust me. Again, it was man- Manila envelopes, and I'd settle, and we you know put the cash in the envelope and seal it. We ended up finishing the tour, so I had these. I think it was thirty shows. I had thirty different envelopes, and and looking back, we just did so. I I kept a backpack on the tour of all of the em- envelopes with all of the cash and would carry it around and we would just leave it in a green room and walk away. Now if someone had took that backpack, that was the entire income from the from the whole wow. tour. So we ended up getting back and I'd, I'd later put everything into you know an Excel spreadsheet and and try and you know log everything. So I would take out the cash and I would you know count it and put it on top of the middle envelope. And I was at my house at the time. Harrison was helping me. I had I was working still and Harrison was like yo I got it don't worry about it I'll finish up here I said cool I ran off to, to work and I came back what was your job was, by the way I worked at a uh, it was called rule it was it was like an Amber Crombie and Fitch you know okay. retail store and this is after I, going on tour with logic managing logic's tour you were back at the mall working retail yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> okay all right okay. And, and I came and I came back and the envelopes were gone there was just 30 (laughs) piles of cash that i had no idea what belonged to what and i and and i called harrison and and i think he ended up trying to clean up so he took the envelopes and ripped them up and threw them out so i had no i had were hot yo chris was so mad we had all this cash we didn't know where it was we didn't know how to divvy it but i say all this to say that harrison went from fumbling 20 grand or whatever we had to juggling millions and millions of dollars in this company with Chris. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show that some 19-year-old, 18, 19-year-old kid Mm. is now this young 30 under 30 boss. And I just just had to show some love to Terry. So you basically are, your your accounting system is um, jotting it on the back of a manila envelope and then later on, inserting this into Excel. Um, But but you walk away from that tour in the black. You, You made some cash. Yeah, we did really well. Yeah, we did really well. It was well. awesome. 
How do you, and this is a super awkward question for both of you, but I always ask this of, of partnerships because it is part of business. Like, how do you figure out who gets paid what? I mean, obviously, Logic, you're you're out there. You're the face of this organization. Like, you represent all of the people now who work for Visionary Music Group and, and the other people involved. And so, Chris, like, how did you know how to divide that up? There, there's, right, a, a typical commission is how um, management works. Right, it's, like 15% it's anywhere, or 10. Yeah, anywhere yeah. from 15 to 20 percent is is the traditional commission for for a manager. Um, I've learned to love the commission model. The more that I've grown, it's because you you don't eat unless everybody eats. There's not right. one person, you know, at the table that has a full plate when you're starving. It's it's that's why I've learned to to love commission. Yeah. And things are crazy now. You know what I mean? 30 plus million dollar deals here and there, doing yeah. this, doing that. But you just got to you got to look in the mirror and say like, "Well, does this person deserve it?" Truly, like yes or no. Take your ego out of it. Take take one in a one in an extra mill here or there in a deal that if they had a lower percentage or that. But the truth is, man, like he earns every penny because hmm. he provides that with me. I don't feel cheated. I never felt that things were unfair or this or that. And we all were so open. We have conversations about it. We have talks about it. Right. And also, to be fair, when you get to my level, there are there's there's a bunch of different people in your pocket, but they're all there to make you money. But I am always the majority. And I think that that is fair. And where you find yourself with artists who are being like taken for 70% <laughs> like it's just I mean that is insane as a collective and uh, and that's where the music industry is really horrible vile and they chew you up and spit you out but this is my friend yeah. and my brother in arms and I think that's the the secret element that has enabled us to be successful for so long is it's just it's really simple it's just genuinely caring yeah. about that person's well-being and what mm. I mean by that you know going back to 2012 when we had a $1.5 million offer, I knew in my gut it wasn't the right opportunity. They were not the right partner. It was not a good deal. But hmm. if I had just suggested or advised him that we take this deal, because I didn't really care what happened to him. I wanted to get my commission and get my check and then, you know, I'm out. But I didn't. So so this is 2012. It's still going to be like another two years before you guys release your first studio record. But between that point and, and the release of the studio record, you still are releasing mixtapes. Were you guys selling that or were you just, again, still kind of building the brand and releasing the, the music for free? We, we were still putting out for free. Um, that tour was a massive eye-opener for us. It was what Logic and I had thought we were building. It, it proved to us and I think everybody else that it was it it was something very real. Bringing out three, four hundred kids um, in different cities across the country from putting out free albums and free mixtapes and selling a lot of merch and and um, it was very it became very real at that time and we wanted to keep that going um, because again we were building leverage and his and building his brand so our thing was we wanted to make a splash when it was his his time for a debut album we wanted to have a really big first uh, week sales uh, so we we decided to continue building and putting out free products what I'm trying to figure out is how did you get the word out like we've done we've done interviews with like the founder of glossier the the cosmetics brand and she started with a, a beauty blog and over time she just you know she built a following and then she introduced 
the brand of of the products, the product line. And then we've we've done episodes with like the founders of Instagram and how that was kind of a a slow build. Like how did you how did people discover Logic's music? I mean, you just you can't just put it out on the internet and hope people will find it, right? No, it was it was it was much more thoughtful and there was a strategy behind everything. I think I, what I did a lot is I watched, right? I, I would watch the way other artists would break and I would try and reverse engineer that and, and figure out, okay, this is really interesting. Uh, YouTube is an amazing tool at the time for being discovered because the way their algorithm worked and their suge- suggested video algorithm, if you remember, and it's still there today, I think it's much different now on the right-hand side, if you'd be watching a certain video, a music video would suggest another artist, that's something that we took advantage of. I sat down with Logic, we would go through the project and I'd say, okay, let's identify four or five songs that we think are singles. And we'd shoot no budget, low budget, point and shoot, music videos for those because that was a, that was a way for us to to get more attention to those songs and as social media started to come out paying attention to that i remember the very early days of snapchat um was something that we took advantage of and logic was on there and building you know a big audience on on that platform and then instagram played a role and we tried to be first movers and on these platforms quick logic did a great job at mm. you know, speaking directly to his audience, he it's, was, it's always about. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, in like taking something that's already been done and making it better. You know, I've I've come recently come out with this thing called Freestyle Fridays on my Instagram, where you essentially create a perfect loop of a song, and it it seems like it's a never ending music video that doesn't stop. Right. And I don't necessarily know of anybody who's done that, at least not on a mainstream platform. But it's like finding ways with something that already exists to put your own stamp on it and make people want it. And all that Freestyle Friday thing is that's it's just crowdsourcing. Yeah. Logic mm. and I were just having a conversation. We came up with the idea. Now we we get to go and look at 15,000 comments and see what their opinion is on the song before we put it out. And we can decide, hey, is that something we want to put out? Should that make the album or not? I mean, it sounds like you had a you had this slow build from sort of 2000, well for you Logic from 2009, but once you entered the picture, Chris, really the first two years were were sounds like they were they were focused on building up, you know, the brand awareness. Like who is making sure people knew who Logic was. So by the time you put out your first studio record um, in in 2014, under pressure, that record, what I think it debuted or went right to number four on the Billboard charts for. Which is like, I mean, were, were you guys surprised by that? Were you shocked? Or did you think, yep, this is exactly as we planned it? We were devastated, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, what, I, what? I mean, I think we were legitimately devastated. Um, for us, it was a number one album or bust. And Wait, that was a number four record of the Billboard charts. You, you were devastated that it wasn't number one? Devastated. Because, wow. and that was where... Again, looking back, I think I could have done a better job probably at educating the record company and and making them feel a little bit more involved in the early days as we were building still very much independently. Like we were putting out these free albums 
and touring the country at that point I think he had gone on I think you did a great job I'm sorry to interrupt you bro you did an amazing job and we were working with people who aren't at that company anymore because it's like musical chairs who didn't believe in your vision and you you know you're talking about like like communicating bro you did a fantastic job and to say what Chris won't they undershipped us they didn't believe in us so much mm. that they undershipped my album. Yeah. And you had all these other huge artists with, you know, 400,000 plus uh, CDs in stores. And I had fans going to Best Buys, having to have the workers there go to the back and take it out of the box because they, our label didn't believe in us enough to even buy shelf space. Not mm. just new release sh shelf space, but shelf space. So I just have to say, you're the... F man bro and you did your job <laughs> but you i have to say job. i mean it's, it's i mean i mean just b b b let's put some perspective on this for a sec i mean there are thousands of records that are released every single week around the world like number four on the u.s billboard charts a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of albums will ever get that high that's a huge achievement i mean that like even if okay i i believe you that you were sad it wasn't number one but it, it sounds like you spent the first two years building up the awareness and by the time that album came out it was gonna it was gonna sell a lot of records it sold a half a million copies i guess um eventually yeah i think that was the first time that we proved to not only ourselves because i didn't think we needed to i think we understood it and we 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 believed in and knew what we were building but i think we proved to the business and and really the world that what we had built, I think a lot of people viewed it as almost like building it in a vacuum. I remember having the conversations and being incredibly frustrated, you know, with the head of sales at the time at Def Jam, where he didn't understand because he's like, hey, you have zero, you've never sold a song in the history of, of your career. And I'm like, that's accurate. But we had sold 100,000 tickets and X wow. number of dollars in merch. So that's going to translate because it's fans who are invested in him right and it's the first time we're asking them not even asking we're putting out music for sale if they're coming to shows and selling out rooms across the country and we're selling out shows all over europe they're gonna buy an album for 7.99 to me it was that was the next logical step is like okay it's just the natural progression of his career now he's a major label artist and we're gonna sell music logic when you when you perform, right, um, are you, do you feel like you're the same person? Do you feel like you're sort of a heightened version of yourself? Do you feel like you're almost uh, embodying a character when you're, when you're on stage? Oh, man, what a, yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm me at my purest form in a way. Like, hmm. like I the best be, version of you? Yeah, well, not even. I think the most vulnerable. I used to be so nervous if I would mess up a line or flub here or do this or do that. But then you got to realize it's like, do you know how many lyrics are in my mind? Like right now, one breath, get down or lay down, hit you with the brevetti, you better stay down, straight shots on the playground, living how I'm living with the life that I'm giving anybody, just riding with me, I'm riding with them. Show me the enemy and I'm going to hit them the second I bit them, I get them, I hit them with the venom, I don't need to pretend I'm going to never do it. I knew what I've already been through it. I do it for the street, for the fan, for the life, anybody that's gang related. Like, do you know how many times I had to mess <laughs> that up to, to be able to do it like that? I cannot imagine. Yeah, but it's like I was I was kicking myself. It wasn't good enough. I was I was Michael Jackson and after the show I was Joe Jackson <laughs> looking in the mirror like how could you do this? And then I kind of started to realize like yo it ain't that deep, man. Like and it was because I, I felt I was at a time where I needed to like prove myself so everything had to be perfect, but it's like yo if you hit one wrong key, bro, it ain't that deep. You know why? Cuz you have a sold out arena at the garden of people who 
if you make a mistake, if anything, it makes them feel a, a further connection to you because totally. they make mistakes. Because we all yeah. make mistakes. So it's definitely a heightened version, but a more vulnerable version. You guys released um, the second studio release was The Incredible True Story. That debuted at number three on the Billboard charts. Your third album, Everybody, debuts at number one. And a, I think a huge turning point in terms of like your mainstream popularity and, and maybe I think it's fair to say superstardom was a song 1-800-273-8255 that came out in 2017. Um, how did that song come about? Oh, man, it's so crazy. So earlier with the second album, uh, we did a tour where, you know, we paid six figures for a tour bus for fans to go to their homes and surprise them and play them the second album before it was even out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we ate dinner with these people and met their families and their friends. And, and I heard about their hopes and dreams and hard times and happy times. And a, the biggest thing that I heard, you know, when they would talk about my music, they're like, yeah, dude, I love your music. Like, it's it goes without saying, like, you make great music. And I'm like, wow, well, thank you. But they're like, but that's not it. The reason I love you, like Logic and your brand and what you represent is because of the message you know, and there's people who are like, you know, you've saved my life. Your music has saved my life. And I, after that, I thought about it for a long time. And I was like, yo, I didn't even try to do that. And I actually have the power to do that. Could you imagine what that would be like? And and, and so when I, when I wrote it, it, I knew it had to be simple, man. It had to be. And it just came. It just was, we were just in the studio and I, I had the hook and I, I sang it and then I did the verse and then I knew in my heart, I was like, man, I need other people on this. And I need other young, influential people, um, you know, that can can help get this message out. Mind you, I'm not in the studio like, yo, this song about killing yourself is about to be a banging number one. Like, no, mm-hmm. like, no way. None, nobody, I don't care. Nobody saw that. Like, nobody saw that. I, and, and, and it was Chris who had the idea to make it 1-800-275, you know, and, and really give it the the whole number because then we could reach people and give them that platform. All this other shit I'm talking about, they think they know it. I've been praying for somebody to say me no one's heroic in my life. Don't even matter, I know it, I know it, I know I'm hurting deep down, but can't show it. I never had a place to call my own. And that number, the name of the song, 1-800-273-8255, that is the telephone number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is... I mean, wow, like you could have called that song, I want to be alive or something else. And you, by giving it that title of the phone number, it was like, it was just super powerful. And did you, did you know that? You know, hindsight's like twenty twenty. Like, sure, we could sit here now and be like, "Oh, of course, it could have been." But like, no, like, especially with what was on the radio. I mean, it's glorification, and we knew it was a great song. And it's funny because then the song comes out, and you got people like, "Well, of course, it's gonna do well." Because, and it's like, get out of here, man. We had no, we had no clue. Did you? Um, I mean, I, I, I understand that you are singing on that record from different perspectives of sort of embodying different voices, but. Um, did you ever feel that way? Did you ever, did, were you ever suicidal in your life? Here's the crazy thing. I've never thought, uh, I've thought about killing myself. I've, you know, I've thought about punching a cash register. These are intrusive thoughts that just happen. We're human. Like they, they happen. And sure. it wasn't until I was like, I experienced true depression and didn't even know I was depressed mm. while I was touring and working that song. 
because <laughs> everywhere I was going, it's suicide, suicide, suicide. Talk about killing yourself. Talk about this. Let's, let's talk about this. Oh, death, death, death. And I mean, can you imagine doing a solid year of talking about killing yourself? Even if you aren't like talking about killing yourself in particular as the artist singing the song, but it's like, yo, and that is, is crazy. And, and going from like, I'd given up on trying to get a hit record. And I remember mm-hmm. telling Chris before that album, I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do it. I was always like in the studio trying to make hits. That doesn't mean I wasn't trying to make something from the heart, but it's like, man, I wanted to be Drake and Rick Ross and this. I wanted to be that <laughs> popular guy too. And when I gave up, I ended up making the song that did it. And then I kind of was like, oh man, like I love this. I love being in the spotlight and being in the spotlight for a positive message, but I just worked it and worked it and grinded and did it so much where I was waking up every day and I wasn't happy going on stage. And I guess at the end of that, sort of towards the end of that just long stretch of touring, this is in, in, in sort of the fall of 2017, you actually had a breakdown, like on uh, yeah. a concert. What what happened? This is in Pittsburgh. What what happened? Yeah, it's crazy, man. So I'm backstage throwing up before I'm going on. I'm malnourished. I'm completely unhealthy. Uh, you know. Were you nervous um, or was it? Just no, I wasn't nervous. No, I was like just a panic attack. You feel like you're out of your body. Like you 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 feel like like a little person in your brain, kind of like you you take a swig of water and you're like, wait, did I did I actually drink that water right now? And I, what what I've come to realize, I think it's a hope uh, a hyper analyzation of uh, the world around you in real time. Time. And, and and that was really hard. So I'm going through all this and, you know, won't really get too much into it. But obviously I was dealing with like relationship issues and I'm trying to manage a, a company and my business and make albums and go on tours. And, and there was a time where I was even like, like, I love Chris. He's my partner. And I want to like quit, not quit rap or that, but I just, I just want to run away, but I can't because we got multi-million dollar deals on the table. And if I don't do this, then it's all going to crumble. And he's sacri- sacrificed his life for me. I'm up here. It's all oh, the weight is on my shoulders. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do that to him. I can't. And then I start realizing I'm, I'm doing shows for other people, not just him for myself and for my, my future family. And I have to stack this money for my children and I've come from nothing. And if I don't do this, it could go away. And they like me now, but then they might not later. And I go on Instagram and it's, you suck and you're terrible and you're going bald and you're white and you're, you can't rap and you're horrible. And you're a disgrace to hip hop. And what is this 1-800? I liked you better when you rap like this. And somebody's like, well, I like this and you don't like, and your mind is going crazy and you step on stage and you don't want to be there after nine months i mean think about nine months on the road nine months of hotels nine months of of dark places and behind the scenes and this and and i'm i'm a human being and that's something that a lot of people don't understand fame be like fame is crazy and 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 that's what that was and i didn't go home and shoot guns and rob this and do and just like no i went home and I said, I'm going to go see my therapist who I see regularly. I'm going to drink a lot of water. I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat better. And I realized that my goals have changed. You know, it's like, it's not about money anymore. It's about, it's about happiness. Why go do a show just because it's going to make me $500,000 in an hour on stage? Like, that's great. But if I'm not there, I should want to be on that stage. And now I, mm. I want to be on that stage because I've taken that time. Chris, how did you, how did you deal with with logic's anxiety and and exhaustion and and you know that what happened in Pittsburgh like that that wasn't just a I mean obviously that was an expression of things that were probably building up over a long time how did you cope with it and what did you do I mean I immediately I'm um you you kind of put on the the friend hat right because 
that's what makes this relationship and, and special is that, again, you, you generally care about him. So for me, I, it was a lot of questions about, hey, how, how can I make you feel better and what can I change? What can we do differently to make sure something like this doesn't happen again? And we learned a lot from it, I think both him and I, on how to move forward and, and, and conduct the business and, and operate on a daily basis even. It, it, it kind of changed a lot of the things we did from just daily communication to what we say yes to, to what we say hmm. no to. And I think we're better for it. I think he'll, he'll say the same thing. And I think we're going to be much more successful moving forward. And, and it's because we got through that and it, it allowed us to, to grow. So when I think about um, like the business that you guys have created, I'm I'm curious about where it goes from here. Like I think about, um, like if I'm an investor, right, and and I go to Jay Z or to Kanye West, like I could buy their company outright, and Jay Z could leave the picture because there's still like an investment arm, and there's a label, and there's other things that at this point you don't necessarily need Jay Z. The business can thrive. Um, right now, you have a business around your brand, whether it's performing or selling merchandise or the tour or writing books or acting. And all of those are are great, but they all require you to constantly stay on the hamster wheel. Did you get, do you ever, both of you, do you ever sort of think about how do we build something for the future that may not require both of us, that can just be a business that is even bigger than, than the two of us? Well, one, I think Chris has already done that in Visionary Music Group and, and the partnerships that he has, but I won't speak for you. I'll let you say that. But uh, even so, I have a, a record label, and we're both equal partners on that, that that we run together called Elysium with artists that I've signed, that we believe mm-hmm. in, that will go out mm-hmm. and essentially make us money, you know, be, mm-hmm. by, by killing it. So it's those... Sm- those businesses and I think that mind state like I have a production company and I haven't really discussed it too much but it's called Bobby Boy and these these are the things I'm doing my films through and uh, and yeah and exactly and so imagine like if I have this production company and I write a script and somebody else takes the wheel so I I, I am looking at the future through still being creative but more so behind the scenes because I have a fan base that wants any product I am willing to give them as long as they are familiar with where it is coming from. So Mm. how about you, Chris? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the brand logic, there's a lot of equity in that now. And, you know, I'm growing my business and and Mm. have have used my experience and I think some of the relationships and most importantly, I think the knowledge and experience that, that I've been able to gain while building logic career right next to him um i've i've recently took on a handful more clients i think I'm, i have seven management clients right now i just wow. i just did, did a joint venture uh label w- with sony music which i'm very very excited about so yeah there there's there's a lot of things to to look forward to and and but one thing i will say though is we kind of didn't answer his question <laughs> and the question was what are what do we have so kind of because we have these artists you have these artists we have these sure. artists that are doing things for us 
I can't speak for Chris. I like to think I can when I say this. You <laughs> said, you know, that we're uh, always on the, the hamster wheel is always going. The truth is my brain is a hamster wheel. It does <laughs> not stop. And that's how I live. So I mm-hmm. have to be involved some way. If I'm not involved, yeah, I trust sure. no one with my money, with my company, with my this, with my that, if I'm not involved. Like I trust Chris with my life, but I'm not just going to be like, just go take it. Not because I don't trust them, but because I don't work that way. I need mm-hmm. to know how you cook the fries at McDonald's, who sweeps the floors, who flips the burgers, the exact time to flip the burgers, this, this, that, that. Even if I'm sitting all the way on the 57th floor in the CEO chair, I need to know. So this is a question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. And of course, I'm going to ask both of you and first you, Chris, when you think about the the journey that you've taken, you know, 20 year old, no experience, like pitching this guy logic to where you are now, like how much of that do you attribute to just really hard work and, and intelligence and skill? And how much of that do you attribute to luck? I think it's probably somewhere in the middle between the both. Um, you know, I look back you know, at my, at my life and I think being, you know, raised by my parents played played a large role in, in who I am as a person today and instilling confidence in me. How serendipity played such a role in me discovering who Logic was. I told the story, if I hadn't been sitting at my computer at that very moment to click that YouTube link and see the video of Logic, I don't think we'd be sitting here today. Um, but there's a large large portion of that where you know it it, it just takes an an almost unimaginable amount of hard work um, and perseverance because of every roadblock and every door that's closed to figure out a way to get through it Um, I think it it lives somewhere in the middle I think my journey I would I would probably have one foot in hard work and intelligence and grind and hustle and one foot in pure and simple luck Hmm. Logic? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's, in the beginning, it's a lot of luck, <laughs> right? Because you, if without that luck, you wouldn't even be blessed enough to be in those uh, positions in those situations. It, you know what's really funny? I can't speak for other famous people, celebrities, musicians, whatever, but I can tell you, like, no one knows how hard I work, and until you, how hard we can work, and. I pay out over a million dollars in salary to to my employees a year. This is a real, real company and hard work, man. You work hard every mother effing day. Yeah, I work hard (laughs) every mother day. We work hard every mother day. Hey, I work hard every mother day. That's Logic, a.k.a. Bobby Tarantino, a.k.a. Young Sinatra, a.k.a. Sir Robert Bryson Hall II, and Chris Saru, founder of Visionary Music Group. Despite the success of Logic's music, both Chris and Logic are relying on an old business strategy to keep the business relevant. That would be the strategy of diversification. In addition to working on a new record, Logic's writing a book and a film script. And for his part... Chris has taken on several new artists to manage, including up-and-comers like John Bellion, Chelsea Cutler, and AOK. And as you mentioned earlier, Chris is launching a joint venture with Sony to build a brand new label. It's called, what else? Visionary Records. And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. 
But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Discover. Discover alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Alerts are free for card members. Just sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today we're updating a story we ran about two years ago from a woman in Stateline, Nevada. Hi, my name is Cassie Burnside and I'm the owner and founder of Fatco. Yep, Fatco. And why would anyone want to put the word fat into the name of their startup? Well, you have to go back a bit because about seven years ago, Cassie started to notice something that kind of bugged her. I would go shopping and I would look at labels and look at ingredient panels and not be able to read anything or pronounce anything. I had no idea what these ingredients were. And she was especially bothered by products that go directly onto your skin, like deodorant and lotions and creams. But then she thought, maybe I can make some of those things myself and use, you know, old-fashioned ingredients. Those were ingredients that we used a lot in soap making. It was used a lot in candle making. And I started wondering, like, why don't we use them anymore? Why did those things go away? And here is where fat comes in. Because Cassie realized that animal fat, it used to be a main ingredient in things like soap and lotions. And so she decided, why not make skin products with beef tallow, the fat from a cow? and you chop it up and you cook it low and slow. And rendered tallow is the liquid fat that drips off of that hard fat during that rendering process. Just to be clear, Cassie does not do this at home. She gets her tallow from a company in Colorado that specializes in rendered fat. And then she mixes the fat with other oils and fragrances to make things like body butter and lotion and those kinds of things. They're nourishing, they're nutrient dense, they're very concentrated and a little goes a long way. Cassie says she took a big risk five years ago when she quit her engineering job to start Fatco. But for the past three years, she's made about $600,000 each year. And last year, in January of 2018, Target started selling Fatco products. As for all the friends and family who told her this would never work, they are not saying that anymore. Even my mom told me I was a little crazy, but now she's our biggest fan. She will go to her grave saying she was customer one for Fatco. Cassie's company is called Fatco. They're launching five new products this month. If you want to find out more about it or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. Our show is produced this week by James Delahousey with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Julia Carney, J.C. Howard, Nora Kudzi, Neva Grant, Melissa Gray, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Candace Lim. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. 
The news is about more than what just happened. You need to know why it happened, who made it happen, how it's felt in the communities you care about. NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, gives you all of that, with context, backstory, and analysis on a single topic every weekday. It's not just information, it's what the news means. Consider This from NPR.